The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Sense the folks around you. It's not so easy not being in the same room, not being able to see each other, but just knowing that the community is out there, sitting in their respective places, and just sending out our love. Good wishes for everyone. Somebody sent in this uh, comment slash question about, you know, would this be a good time to talk about how the Buddha might, what the Buddha might have to say about being skillful, being wise and kind at a time of coronavirus. And I'm guessing that, you know, if, if there were a Buddha, a wise, deeply wise human being, you know, and probably there are deeply wise human beings, at least in moments, people are deeply wise. And I'm guessing what happens, like it probably happens to us when our heart and mind is in a more balanced place, our heart is moved, right? It's often moved, especially when we see suffering and we see human beings, ourselves included, responding to the suffering in ways that just make things worse. That tends to really break our hearts open. And that is part of the story of what broke the Buddha's heart open and inspired him to teach for his 45 years before he died. And so we'd be moved, right? A wise person's heart would be moved. Oh, a lot of human beings doing their best to be happy, but end up and doing their best because of not really understanding, not really perceiving clearly the way it is. They act in ways that make things worse for themselves and for others. And so that might inspire the Buddha to teach about the path, this, this topic that we've been studying now since January. There is a path, and it begins, as, it, as the Buddha talks about in the Four Noble Truths, the path begins by understanding that there's a problem. This heart, this mind, is anxious. It's reacting to the uncertainty and to the vulnerability, the unreliable, ungovernable nature of our lives. I don't like it. I don't want it to be this way. And the heart, the mind, and then the body follows. It gets tight. So the first thing the Buddha might model and teach and sort of exhibit some confidence that it's actually quite useful for us to get curious about the problem at hand. What is the problem? You know, if we were to ask ourselves, how do I know I'm not happy, fully, completely, unshakably happy right now? And then we might you know, something might come to mind, some uneasy thing like, I don't know about this problem, I haven't solved it yet. We haven't nailed down all of the uh, issues of insecurity and vulnerability. And so 
We would own. Okay, so there is, it seems to be part of life, this vulnerability, this insecurity, this uncertainty, this exposure to suffering, to unpleasantness and worse. Okay, let me, this is what the Buddha might say, you know, the particular offering at this time when there is, maybe for some of us at least, a more obvious experience of insecurity. Okay, can that insecurity itself be a teacher? Instead of immediately presuming it's a problem, what might it have to teach me? And it's not like we're trying to figure it out. We're just seeing if we're willing, if we could possibly be willing to get close. So this is what in Buddhism we call the first noble truth. Appreciating dukkha, and dukkha gets badly translated as suffering, more specifically means this profound, ordinary and subtle, pervasive sense of unsatisfactoriness, uneasiness in our hearts, like an existential itch that we haven't been able to scratch, just always uneasy. And like I said, this is a time when this becomes more apparent. You might even notice that the mind is a little bit more obsessive, more reactive, hotter in terms of flaring, anger flaring up or more obsessively interested in sense pleasures and dependent on moving from one sense to light or relatively pleasant experience to the next and panicking when we don't have some pleasant experience, uh, petting the cat or, you know, doing this, eating that. So once the Buddha would, you know, confidently from his own experience, her only own experience, say, yeah, you know what? There is uncertainty and it's a teacher. Don't presume you know what it is. Get to know it as a teacher. Get close to it. Because then what's revealed is that this uneasiness of the heart is lawful. It's conditional. It's natural. It arises due to causes and conditions. So when that uneasiness, when my heart, mind is reacting to insecurity and vulnerability, right? What are the supporting causes for that suffering, that uneasiness? And we see, we look and we see, oh, there's identification there. We realize that the ultimate cause for this uneasiness, this disturbance deep in the heart. And one of the suttas, the the Buddha's discourses, he uses this image of a thorn stuck deep in the heart, hard to see. But when it's uncovered, this deep, subtle, pervasive tendency to grasp, to struggle, to want, to fear, to hate, When it's discovered, when it's seen for what it is, that's the removing of that uh, thorn deep in the heart. So this is the second noble truth, the second aspect of our practice of in getting to know the uneasiness that we're feeling at this time. We see right here and now that the heart, the mind is participating in the uneasiness. 
It's not coming from outside. It isn't entirely because of the virus or because people we love are suffering or because we feel helpless. Part of the weight and the uneasiness in our hearts is what the mind, what the heart is doing with the experience. We're adding this identification. We're adding the sense that the virus and the insecurity, the uncertainty is personal. And that we can do something about. But we have to see that thorn. We have to see that particular mental activity, that particular misunderstanding clearly for it to be abandoned. We can't just get in there in an egoic sort of way and get rid of attachment. Oh, I'm done with attachment. I know I shouldn't be attached to conditions being safe. So I'm just going to stop being dependent on safety. I'm going to stop being dependent on certainty. Well, it doesn't work. But we can realize that the heart is anxious, uneasy. We can make it a meditation object all day long, not just during the formal set. What is this uneasiness of the heart? Oh, it's a lawful, natural unfolding. It isn't actually personal. Let me get closer. Let me really feel into this. Let me let it rip. Because when we're controlling it, we can't see it clearly. We actually have to allow the heart to be touched by uncertainty and vulnerability and all the natural triggers that are around us. We need to let those triggers trigger what they're going to trigger in the heart, in the mind. And then we get to see it as a natural and an impersonal activity. And we see that the thorn, the actual problem, is the mind misunderstanding the emotional patterns, the mental psychological patterns. It's not that we have emotion or that we have conditioned habits. The worst part or the prob problem of it all is that we misunderstand the emotions and the mental activities that our conditioned mind and heart is filled with. Of course, you know, being a human being, when we hear the news, there's going to be a response in the mind and heart. But what is the mind and heart taking that response to be? So this is subtle. This is why we have to turn our life and our experience, especially the inner experience of the heart and mind, into a teacher. We're studying our heart and mind. We're studying the activity of the heart and mind, and we're really learning how it is that suffering, that dis-ease of the heart comes to be. And when something is not there, how that dis-ease of the heart does not come to be. And this sets up the insight into the third noble truth. There is an ending of suffering. We've all, I'm betting, experienced this over the last few weeks. So here we are, generally, in an anxious time with a lot of uncertainty. And probably there were moments when the heart wasn't burdened, wasn't misunderstanding. So I'm not talking about just those moments when we were absorbed in a good movie or playing with a friend or something like that. I mean, even right, you know, moments when we were aware of the uncertainty, the exposure, the vulnerability. But the mind, in that moment, there was enough balance, enough clarity, 
enough discernment, like understanding, I don't have to turn what is true here and now into a personal problem. It's the way that it is, and I'm just not adding that second part of constructing a sense of a me that doesn't want it to be this way, wants it to go back or wants it to change this way or that way for just a moment. And that thorn is removed deep in the heart. And then the wisdom here, the mind, it recognizes this heart as it is without that struggle, without that identification and rejection or that wanting things to be other than they are. We notice the mind that's balanced and clear and empty of selfing, self-centered drama, for a moment, or maybe two moments, or three moments. And we taste, we have an insight into what the Buddha was pointing to when he taught about the third noble truth. There is an end to suffering. There is a release. It's possible. And the more we have that experience, little tastes of the heart in the middle, engaged in our world, not off in some, you know, distracted state of denial or whatever, but really grounded in reality, but free of struggle, free of grasping. Then what comes online, what we see more clearly is the path, which is the fourth noble truth. So we have the first teacher is there is dukkha, there's a problem here. We're not afraid to acknowledge that there's insecurity and vulnerability and there's a me that doesn't like it and all of that together we call dukkha and it's to be understood so we get close. We develop the stability and balance of awareness, samadhi, we call it in Buddhism. We develop this balanced present moment awareness, this steady present moment awareness to study our teacher which is I don't like all this insecurity. I don't like this exposure. I don't even like, you know, staring at a screen when I know you're all out there, but I can't really connect. There are a lot of things I don't like. I don't like the ache in my knee. I don't like the coolness of the room. So this is interesting. Like, does it have to be a personal struggle? Given that the conditions are the way that they are, does this personal struggle, this not liking, this problem, this weightful problem, what is this? Let me get close. And then we see that subtle thorn of identification or attachment. We can't just pull it out. We have to really sense what's extra. That selfing that's extra, that identification that's extra. We have to keep sensing it until it falls away naturally. And then we realize the third noble truth. Oh, this is the end of suffering. This is the heart or mind when there's no attachment, no fixed agenda, no tightness, just nimble responsivity to the moment, doing what needs to be done, but the mind, the heart, not fixed with this selfing. Like, I need this. This has to be. This is not okay. And then, like I said, the path comes clear. And then that's what we've been talking about since January, 
is this fourth noble truth, which is the Buddha's mapping or articulation of a path. Now the path only exists when our heart-mind has a little intuition about the end of suffering, like that the end of suffering has something to do with this heart, not some other heart, this heart right here, not the Buddha's heart, not our teacher's heart, but my own heart, my own mind right here, free of grasping. So then, that what, what sort of arises from that is, okay, there's a choice. I can be living dependent on grasping, dependent on taking things personally, that very deeply habituated pattern of taking things personally, or I can cultivate this initial wisdom that it matters how I perceive, what sort of intentions and what kind of perceptions I have. And I've been talking, in January I talked about how this is the initial level of wisdom. It really matters how we're understanding, how we're showing up. Are we showing up with greed, trusting greed, like if I get this then I'm going to be happy, or aversion, if I get rid of this then I'm going to be happy, or delusion, some version of if I only didn't have to be here in my life then I'd be happy. That is not the way. So the Eightfold Path or the Buddha's articulation of the spiritual path begins with this understanding that our ordinary habits of perceiving and the kind of motivations and intentions we have in taking care of our lives are inadequate. They don't help, a lot of them. And we need to transform them. And so this is this beginning discernment of what's skillful and unskillful, what habits can be trusted, like can greed be trusted as delivering happiness for me? Can hatred be trusted? Can denial and distraction be trusted as a long-term strategy for happiness? So we check it out, and it turns out, no, they can't be tra trusted. And we try to, you know, we have some pointing out instructions, but it would even dawn on our mind, like, well, if greed isn't the way, what would non-greed be? And we find a way, well, let me, let me experiment being generous, not, not stingy. Let me experience, uh, experiment being content with what I already have instead of proliferating about, if only I had this, then I'd be happy. I'm not happy now, but if I got that, then I'd be happy. So we, once we really see that greed, we start to detect greed, that identification with the idea, if only, then I'll be happy, is the problem. Then we have some pointing out about, what, what about non-greed? Same with hate and aversion and fear. Or what about non-fear, non-hate, non-aversion, kindness? Distraction and denial, well, what about seeing things as they are, this kind of stable, balanced clarity? Oh yeah, it's just this being known, just this experience being felt. So we, you know, we began with that initial wisdom that it matters, and then we applied that like whatever we've been learning about what we sense is skillful, what we sense is unskillful, we just apply that to the grosser level of our lives, our relationships with other beings, in terms of what we say and how we act and how we earn our living. 
right? So this is this whole area of taking the initial wisdom that it matters. When I'm self-centered with greed, hatred, and delusion, it matters. It sets emotion, causes for stress for myself and others. When I relate to other folks and to earning a living and how I speak, use my words, with non-greed, non-hate, non-delusion, seems like it works a lot better. And then we take that same application of what we've been learning as unskillful and skillful, and we apply it more subtly to our mind, the ecology of our own heart and mind. Okay, if it matters out there in the world when I'm interacting with other people, if it really matters when I'm greedy, when I'm hateful and irritated, when I'm deluded or distracted, versus when I'm kind, when I'm generous, when I'm content, when I'm really valuing clarity, if that matters out in the world when I'm earning my living and speaking and interacting with others, maybe it matters in terms of how the mind, this sort of inner environment of our thinking, emoting heart and mind, maybe that same uh, clarification about what's skillful and unskillful matters in terms of the inner environment of our mind in the same way that it matters out in the outer environment of all of our relationships, our interrelating. And that's what we've been talking about recently, these last few weeks. And the Buddha talks about bringing that interest to the mind about what's skillful and unskillful as the practice of samadhi, which is a word some of you know. It's a, nicely translated as a kind of stability, balance, stability, settledness, and clarity of the heart and mind. Uh, and more often in the text gets translated as concentration. And this wise samadhi, this third of our spiritual path, we have wisdom as a third, we have applying wisdom to our uh, relationships, the ethical part of our practice as a third of the practice, and then applying wisdom to the heart and mind itself is a third of the practice. And when we use our initial wisdom and bring it to the outer world, our relationships, and we stabilize and harmonize and we live more skillfully around non-harming, well, things begin to settle down. And then we bring that same attention to the mind, the environment of the mind, and the mind settles down even a lot more now. And then that subtleness, that greater samadhi, really supports the deepening of wisdom. So then wisdom goes from being mundane wisdom to deeper and deeper insight, where we're seeing not just the beginnings of what is skillful and unskillful in terms of how we're relating, but we begin to see the underlying nature of the mind and the activity of the mind itself. And that sense, that natural deepening that it's not personal, and the best way to take care of the mind is to stop imposing any sort of um, dependence on its the mind's constructs. That the, the natural feedback of the mind purifying itself, the heart purifying itself, it happens naturally. So in a, in a sense where 
the deepening of wisdom is we're purifying who we are as a practitioner, as a spiritual practitioner. Initially, who we are as a spiritual practitioner is we're somebody willing to get in there and get dirty and refrain from acting out because we've learned that that's not skillful and to really promote and to get ourselves to our meditation chair or meditation cushion, put in our 30 minutes or 60 minutes a day, listen to talks, do some study. But more and more, we learn that even that sort of uh, identification with wholesome activity can be abandoned. Does it mean that we, the mind, this life abandons wholesome activities? It just means it isn't a self-activity. It becomes a natural activity. And that really begins to streamline the awakening, the growing up, you know, the spiritual maturing process is going from a somebody owning, like I'm doing the spiritual practice, I'm at A, I want to get to Z, and why is somebody further ahead than me, and how'd they get there, and how do I, you know, catch up? Looking at spiritual life from a self-centered point of view, to understanding more and more, not conceptually, but just from our own observation, that this, there is a spiritual path, it's a natural process. And the more that I practice as if it is a natural process, instead of thinking of it as a personal process, the more skillful the path becomes, the more effective it becomes. And that's that circle where we take the initial wisdom, we apply it to our relationships, we apply it to the mind, and the wisdom deepens. And the wisdom is that it's nature and not self. So then, then when we look at our ethical behaviors, we see when we're being unskillful, but there's, no, there's less and less of a reason to hate ourselves for being unskillful. Because the mind just naturally begins to see more deeply, yeah, it's how it is. I've been acting like a jerk. I've been very inappropriate. I've been planting seeds for suffering. I care about it. And all of that, including the caring about it, is nature and not self. The feedback mechanism is right there in the natural process. But of course, it depends on one thing. The whole path depends on valuing mindfulness. So I just want to end uh, before we I take a few questions by just reminding us, and I'll ask uh, Gabe to put the uh, sheet from Gil Fransdahl's Center, Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City. Um, he has some collected or compiled some of the Buddhist teachings on wise effort and energy. And it, you might find it useful. I mentioned last week about the four exertions and it's, we need to bring this very powerful but also gentle um, attention to developing this power of mindfulness and the samadhi, the stability of mindful awareness, wisdom awareness. And initially, how we bring effort to this really matters. Because uh, I remember, I think it was... Uh, one of my main teachers, Joseph Goldstein, um, said, this is a long time ago, but if he were to look back over his many decades of practice, 
one way to really understand the course of his practice was as a deepening understanding of wise effort. And that really struck me as wise, <laughs> just in terms of my own practice. Like, And I, I'm sure a lot of you also remember when you first got started and and how often our, the way we were making effort was just off. Either, either we misunderstood the practices like just hanging back, letting things happen. So then we'd have a lot of distractedness in our meditations or a lot of sleepiness in our meditations. And then we could swing the other way and think, okay, I'm, I'm going to get on that high horse and I'm going to really control my mind and make effort and do it right. And we end up getting really tight sometimes when we have that attitude in mind. And so just to understand, like, what is right effort? And it isn't one thing, you know. The kind of effort that's right or useful really depends on the kind of mind that's present in that moment. And sometimes effort will need to sort of meet a mind that's is uh, maybe I mentioned, I forget if it was here in the Buddhist studies class, about a mind that's like ice instead of a mind that's like water or like vapor. Right? Sometimes the mind is like ice, it's solid, and the kind of effort needs to be a little bit more assertive, let's say. Other times the mind is very uh, beautiful and settled and clear, and the kind of effort is very subtle, just the effort could be as much as trusting the wholesome qualities that are present, recognizing and trusting them, recognizing that the mind is wholesome, that the mind is clear, that there aren't unwholesome qualities. So discerning that wholesomeness, recognizing it, and trusting it, letting it be. Maybe that's skillful effort when the mind is more settled. So it really changes, you know, depending on the particular nature of the mind. So here's a, just a few passages from that uh, handout, um, the Buddhist teachings on wise effort and energy. With steady effort, one should do what is to be done because the lax practitioner stirs up even more dust. And that's that sort of not uh, holding back in practice. We don't want to make unskillful effort, but we, we really want to understand that the present moment matters. I may not know how to show up, but I know that it matters, and I'm going to practice showing up, and if the way I'm showing up practicing, isn't helping, then I'll notice that and I'll try to show up and practice in a different way. I'll put in more energy or I'll back off a little bit. I'll notice more details of what's coming and going in the moment or have a more broad, open awareness of what's coming and going in the present moment. Be more curious about what's not being seen, more curious if there are any hindrances there not being recognized clearly. Another passage from the uh, Dhammapada. This is chapter 2. Some of you know this. It's quite well known. 
And it, the chapter is titled Vigilance, which is the Pali word apamara. And vigilance is, I think, a, it seems like a good translation. This is a Gil Fransdahl's translation of that Dhammapada. And you know, the word vigil means to stay awake. I've been raised a Catholic. You know, we'd have on uh, the night before Christmas or the night before Easter, midnight mass, we'd have a vigil and we'd have light. Something would be illuminated late into the night and we'd bring a careful attention at a time we'd otherwise be asleep. So this vigilance, apamada, is a really important quality in the Buddhist teachings and it relates to the wise effort of not going back to sleep. How easy it is for us to slip into autopilot habit energies, we're not really mindful. Honestly, most of the day, we're not that mindful. Even those of us who practice for many years, many decades even, uh, that continuity of a vivid, bright, intimate breadth and depth of present moment awareness that's really a beautiful and unfortunately rare quality. We can touch into it, and hopefully we do throughout the day, in this moment, in that moment. But it really uh, becomes transforming when it becomes more and more continuous. It's almost, I think of it as an exponential function in terms of the power of what's illuminated, what's understood with continuity. So here's the Buddha, and it relates to some of what the Buddha said right before he died, too, about the importance of apamata, vigilance. Vigilance is the path to the deathless. Negligence is the path to death. The vigilant do not die. The negligent are as if already dead. Knowing this distinction, vigilant sages rejoice in vigilance, delighting in the field of the awakened ones. Absorbed in meditation, persevering, always steadfast, the wise touch nibbana, nirvana, this unconditioned peace or the unconditioned release of the heart. And it goes on, the ultimate rest from toil. Glory grows, grows for a person who is energetic and mindful, pure and considerate in action, restrained and vigilant, and who lives in who lives the Dhamma, which would mean in alignment with the way things are. Through effort, vigilant, vigilance, restraint, and self-control, the wise person can become an island. No flood will overwhelm. Unwise, foolish people give themselves over to negligence. The wise protect vigilance as the greatest treasure. The wise protect vigilance as the greatest treasure. So that's that can be a very useful um, thing for us to remember this week and the weeks ahead as we navigate our lives, especially at this uncertain and difficult time for many folks, to really trust that capacity of our heart to be right in the middle. Even when we're panicking or overwhelmed or some difficult, unskillful emotion has been triggered in us. 
I've been feeling some really strong emotions getting triggered these last few days. And, uh, and it's been really interesting to play that edge between like, whoa, this is interesting, that sort of skillful mindfulness that has some space, the space to recognize that very potent, seductive emotion is something being known here. So to go from that to really, you know, in some way caught by the emotion thinking, this is not okay for me to be having this emotion, I have to resolve it. And it's really powerful to realize and give permission for these strong emotions to rise without acting them out, but without needing to repress them or to be in denial. Oh yeah, this beautifully ugly, unwholesome emotion has bloomed here in the mind, in the body, in the heart. Feels like this, looks like this, and wisdom's not confused. Or to some degree, wisdom's not confused by it. Wisdom's willing to feel it. Well, you could say compassion and wisdom is willing to feel it. Give it space and trust that like everything else, it will do its dance and it will pass away. So before we end, I thought I'd just uh, read a question that came in and just encouraging anybody who has questions to send them in. You can send them to the info at commongroundmeditation.org uh, email address. And I'll uh, take care of the questions on Sunday, but also, as I mentioned last week, when Fricky and I are doing a community practice check-in every Tuesday at 12 noon. We're not doing the YouTube live stream, we're using Zoom so we can have a more interactive conversation. So you can get that link from the Common Ground calendar online, and you just look under Tuesday, 12 noon, you'll see that community practice check-in. And then, you know, a few minutes before noon, just check that Zoom link and you'll come in to that Zoom uh, conversation. And we'll have a guided meditation for the first half an hour. And then Wynn and I will just facilitate the conversation and answer questions for that second half an hour. But one of the questions that came in from Mary Laurel, um, wondering about the concept of including everything that is being felt and introduced by the thinking mind saying yes to everything. And what seems to be the opposite instruction that I've heard recently, saying to oneself when a difficult thought comes up, something like, honey, don't go down that road. It will only lead to, unhelpful, to an unhelpful place. And I think this question uh, is a great question and it relates to what I was saying a little bit ago about how effort Wise effort is always specific to the mind, to the moment. And so we can't have an idea of what wise effort looks like, but we can be connecting moment by moment, opening moment by moment, feeling what's here to feel moment by moment. And because of that wise, mindful presence, the skillful response is more likely to arise. So in terms of this question, like between saying yes to everything and that wise discernment, honey, don't go down that road. If you, if you pick up that mental content, if you begin to proliferate, you're going to end up in an entangled and heavy mind state. And it's not going to be pretty and it won't be good for you or for anyone. Because both come 
when mind when mindfulness is really strong established balanced open seeing things as they are then we might see an unskillful emotion arise and then in the next moments we might see that kind of fierce uh, kind of parental energy honey don't go down that road but both of those arisings both that willingness to be present and that fierce compassion, don't go down that road, both of those arise because of the stability of awareness, because the mind is seeing things as they are. So the more practical and pragmatic interventions in our own mind, and then out in our world, like in terms of choices we're making, choosing skillful versus unskillful reactions, that skill comes naturally from paying attention. So being in that balanced place doesn't get in the way of a fierce uh, intervention, either in our own heart or in the wider world, in the world of relationships. And you'll see that. Like the more we value present moment awareness, the more naturally we catch ourselves being skillful in terms of taking care of our heart and in terms of taking care of our relationships. So I'll just end with a, a little poem from the Dalai Lama related to uh, effort. And I like this. I've had it for a long time. I'm not sure where I initially found it. But it's Never Give Up is, is the title of this poem. Never give up. <clears throat> no matter what is going on, never give up. Develop the heart. Too much energy in your country, I think he's talking about the United States, too much energy in your country is spent developing the mind instead of the heart. Be compassionate, not just to your friends, but to everyone. Be compassionate. Work for, work for peace in your heart and in the world. Work for peace. And I say again, never give up. No matter what is going on around you, Never give up. And this is really the energy of effort, is realizing that there's always a relatively skillful or a relatively unskillful way for my heart to be showing up right now. So why wouldn't we, because of compassion for ourselves and for the world, why wouldn't we care enough to show up and pay attention? Am I relating? Am I showing up in a skillful way or an unskillful way? And I see that some of you, it seems like, wrote some questions there. And uh, Wynn and I will look through them and use them for the Tuesday group. We're not recording because it's a Zoom conversation and a little, uh, the privacy issue is such that it's not, doesn't make sense for us to record on Tuesday. So please join us for Tuesday if you'd like. Um, to hear some of the responses to the questions you sent in and just really appreciate being with everybody this Sunday. Hope you're all well. Please take care of yourselves and each of us finding ways to take care of everybody. Take care, everyone. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, 
www.commongroundmeditation.org.